Bonjour, je m'appelle Jean-Jacques Burnel, je suis ici à Stockholm, en Suède, et il fait très froid. Bienvenue chez moi Jean-Jacques, avec ça va grand plaisir, merci <rire> de m'avoir invité. Tes parents étaient français, n'est-ce pas C'est pour ça Tous que tu parles le français comme ça Je suis né à Londres, euh, dans Kensington et Chelsea, tout en près de, du consulat et de l'ambassade français. Mes deux parents étaient normands. Et euh, je suis né dans l'hôpital où a été déclaré mort Jimi Hendrix. Vraiment Oui. Oh. St. Mary Abbott's Hospital. Tu es né en 1952, n'est-ce pas 52, oui. Et tes parents, ils avaient un restaurant pas, pas en 52. Euh, mon père était chef, cuisinier. Ma mère était serveuse. Et puis, éventuellement, ils ont réussi à, à, à acheter un restaurant euh, près de Guildford, dans le sud, euh, dans le Surrey, au sud de Londres. Voilà. Et donc, à cette époque-là, tu, tu préférais la... Ce qu'on mangeait, en, la cuisine française ou la cuisine anglaise <rire> Bah écoute, c'est un peu pervers, mais j'adorais la, la bouffe à l'école. <rire> mais j'étais le seul, tout le monde trouvait ça dégueulasse. Mais moi, comme j'étais habitué à si bien manger, pour moi c'était exotique d'avoir des puddings et des pies et des trucs comme ça. Écoute, on va peut-être changer de langue, s'il y a des gens qui écoutent et qui ne comprennent pas le français. Uh, ok. You just flew here from, from Nice. Uh, I flew uh, from Nice to Paris. I did a, rec a recording in Paris uh, in tribute to a, a singer who died only a few years ago, Daniel Dark, who was previously in a band called Taxi Girl. Uh, and then I flew from Paris to Stockholm uh, this morning, yeah. But you live on the Côte d'Azur? I do, yeah, yeah. I live uh, in Le Var, uh, which is about, I live about an hour from Nice, uh, west of Nice, 10k from the sea and at the start of the Alps. And they let you into Nice these days, because, you know, Nice <laughs> is a famous city in Strangler's history. After a show back in 1980. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, uh, the the regime that controlled Nice at the time was found um, very wanting, isn't it, the English expression. Uh, basically, the mayor of Nice, who was the son of a previous mayor of Nice, was uh, put in prison for all kinds of naughty things. And in fact, at the, um, in the 60s, I believe, Graham Greene... The, the writer, wrote um, a book about the corruption in Nice at the time called J'accuse. Um, so um, the present regime is much more tolerant of someone like me with a prison record in Nice prison. You got arrested for inciting a riot, but you only said that people should speak to the promoters about getting their money back. I think it was a very volatile um, period and... Um, It, it just needed a little spark for the whole thing to explode. And they let you into Sweden too these days, which I'm happy for. So well, I heard that you, got, you got deported <laughs> twice by uh, policemen with machine guns. Twice. That's yeah, impressive. It was twice we were supposed to play in Stockholm. And one time we were in a place called Klippan. Outside Örebro. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> and uh, we uh, we were uh, visited by about 50 or 60 
big American cars from the 50s and 60s and people called, I think, the Ragare, Ragare? The Ragare. Ragare, yeah. It's easy for you to say. And uh, they smashed all our equipment, attacked our crew and um, attacked a few police people before uh, everything got settled down and we were escorted to Helsingborg to take the ferry to Copenhagen. That was the first time. And we had T-shirts made. Um, I survived the Battle of Klippan. <laughs> Did you? And then the second time, um, it was one of uh, Jet's diabetic phases, I think. We had sat your, down... Your drummer, Jet. Our drummer, yeah, our former drummer, uh, who's still our Eminence Gris. And uh, he came down late to the restaurant... Um, and we all sat down, we'd already ordered our food. So he wanted to attract the attention of the waiters. So he went into reception and came back with one of those electronic, very early electronic machines. And lifted, unplugged it and threw it into the middle of the restaurant. Um, I think a Swedish family saw what was happening and ran away with their kids. And we were looking at ourselves thinking, we're not going to get served now and he sat down thinking yeah I'm going to get served no he didn't get any service so he went up to the bar got a bar stool and smashed up all the alcohol on the bar and we realized we weren't going to eat so we went to our rooms and about five ten minutes later every door was opened police that uh, the boss of the re of the hotel with police behind him with machine guns, escorted out uh, to our cars, escorted to Stockholm Airport in the middle of the night, waited for the first plane out of the country. Another Stockholm gig unfulfilled. The Ragera attacked a lot of punks in Sweden, including the Sex Pistols. But when they were attacked by the Ragare, they kind of ran, like most people do. You actually made a Molotov cocktail and threw at them. Well, yeah, if, if we'd had more, we would have done more. But, how uh, on earth did you know how to make one of those? Oh, it's dead easy, you know. It's, how, uh, how do you do it? You, um, you siphon petrol from a tank, right? So you might, you know, you have to siphon it from a petrol tank. Then you put it into a bottle, glass bottle preferably, You have um, in tige uh, a bit of cloth, light it, throw it. Dead easy. Not that I recommend it to anyone to do, you know. I just read your excellent book, Strangler in the Night, which just came out. It's basically a biography where you talk to the French writer Anthony Boel, and all the chapters begin with the letter M. And you've often talked about how important the five M's have been in your life. They stand for motorcycles, martial arts, music, marijuana, and masturbation. Now that you're 70 years old, do they still hold the same attraction to you? Absolutely, yeah. In fact, now, uh, they even more so, because as I, as I see the, the, the clock ticking, um, I want to get in as much as possible. My Generation by the Who was quite revolutionary when it came out. The, the uh, sound of the guitars, the feedback, the 
bass part in it is still one of my favourite bass parts of all time by John Entwistle. And it was, uh, it summed up the spirit of the age. Suddenly we realised that we were teenagers, or in my case, I was soon to be a teenager. And it was just their attitude was so uh, different to all the showbiz uh, music that we'd been fed with all that time. And it was really radical. And of course, it coincided with um, uh, a bit of a social uh, phenomenon in the UK with the mods and the rockers. And uh, so it was very representative of its time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I love the way he stutters. Yeah. Because he sounds so desperate. Well, you know why. It's the way he could get away with saying... Everyone's expecting something else, but you can't. You couldn't say that at the time. So, why don't you all fade away instead of why don't you all fuck off? But at that point, you were a kid. But were you more of a rocker than a mod? Well, I was both because uh, <laughs> you, you, you had a motorbike. Well, yeah, but before that, I had a scooter. Oh, that's I very modest. <laughs> very, uh, and I had back combed hair. Uh, six, at the age of 16, I backcombed my hair, centre parting, uh, mod shirts, and a parka, and a Lambretta Li150. So for a year, I and uh, hipster trousers, and Dr. Martin's, of course. Um, and so, yeah, and then when, uh, the age of 17 in the UK at the time, you could get a driving licence. So all my friends had had scooters, got cars and I didn't, I wanted to have a very fast two-wheeled thing. So I suddenly went into motorcycles. So I, I went from being a mod to trying to be a rocker. I started listening to The Stranglers in the mid-90s because I used to like this band called Elastica and Justine Frischman, the singer <laughs> in Elastica, talked about The Stranglers a lot. And she also borrowed some of your like your, the riff from your song No More Heroes in their song Waking Up uh, and your publishing company sued Elastica and you settled out, out of court. Well, yeah, they, they didn't, without a struggle. <laughs> they settled without a struggle, yeah. Another big Stranglers fan is Peter Hook from Joy Division and New Order. I, I, this summer I, I follow him on Instagram and he put out this picture of YouTube with, and he wrote, one of my base heroes... Yeah, it was, uh, well, for many years, we've got a few friends in common. And many years, um, I was saying to those friends in common, I said, uh, well, I hear this guy saying really nice stuff about me. Uh, I'd like to meet him, you know. And I kept kept on getting the reply, oh, no, um, he doesn't want to meet you because he doesn't want to meet his heroes. 
And I said, well, why? Because you can be disappointed, can't you, sometimes? You meet someone, you've got an image of someone and they don't live up to it or they're ourselves. Did that happen to you at any point? I've, it's happened to, on a couple of occasions, yeah, mentioning no names or maybe if it's worth it. <laughs> um, but he, he eventually agreed to meet because we were playing on the same festival and a lovely bloke. Someone who was not so impressed by The Stranglers was Mick Jagger. He had this to say about you in 1977. Don't you think The Stranglers are the worst thing you ever fucking heard? I do. They're hideous, rubbishy, so bloody stupid, fucking nauseating they are. Thank you very much, Mick. Mick that's, Jagger. Well, that's great. I, I, I take that as a compliment, actually. Um, a, a bit like uh, uh, Phil Collins said um, he hated The Stranglers. And I, I take that as a badge of, you know... Badge of honour. But you were somehow a controversial band. Well, I'm, people make made us to be controversial. All you, all we were being was honest. So we, you know, if you don't subscribe, I mean, those days uh, you didn't get cancelled if you had a di different uh, view uh, to the rest, you know, to everyone else. Uh, so you just had uh, people saying that we were all awful. Nowadays, we, uh, you know, if you have a different point of view, you get cancelled. So where's freedom of speech there? I was surprised when, when I heard the music because I'd read so many places that you were so violent and you went around looking for trouble. So when, I kind of expected the music to sound as if it was made by, you know, cavemen without opposable thumbs. But then <laughs> the music was really subtle with, you know, it's not even punk, because you had a keyboard player. Most punk groups didn't have that. Well, yeah, that was considered a heresy by the new orthodoxy, actually, at the time. And I, I've always wondered, who bloody creates these rules, you know? There should be no rules uh, for, for that. Yeah, and well, we were even heretics because we had a synthesizer. Before, you know, no one had synthesizers apart from the prog rock bands, you know, Rick Waitman and that, you know. And one of your most famous songs, Golden Brown, has a waltz tempo and is played on a harpsichord. Yeah. Played by Dave Greenfield, your keyboard player who sadly passed away two years yes. ago. And the tour that you're out on now is a tribute to him. Well, he's... Um, the... Uh, oh, sorry, I get, I get a bit... I still get a bit um, emotional, actually, about uh, Dave... It's really difficult to have been friends with someone for 45 years and worked with them and even lived with them um, to, to, and then suddenly they go. So it's really, uh, I don't know how to put it, it's um, just even mentioning Dave is, is quite hard for me, still. You have this beautiful electropop tribute to him on, on your latest record, uh, Dark Matter. There's yes. a song called If Something's Gonna Kill Me, It, it Might As Well Be Love, where you... It sounds a bit like Kraftwerk. Uh, well, uh, a little bit. Very much. So. I'm a big fan of Kraftwerk and, and all the uh, the Krautrock, what we called it, Krautrock in, in the UK anyway. Um, yeah, I, I can, you know, Neu, Dusseldorf, Kraftwerk. Uh, there is something... They, they hit a nerve which I think influenced an awful lot of the British bands, not only the Stranglers. And, of course, you know, uh, we came along just when there was this huge uh, change. There was analogue to digital. 
And so we embraced it because I really wanted to, uh, there were new sounds being created and new ways of looking at rhythm, uh, which I found exciting. So, yeah. She's a model and she's looking Speaking of craft work, as we were, um, they were uh, hugely influential and um, they released a single um, several years after it had been on an album, actually, and it prevented The Stranglers going to number one. Um, we, had, uh, we, were, uh, we had a song called Golden Brown, which was mentioned earlier, uh, which was a worldwide hit. Um, but it, in, the, in our own home country, it was prevented from going to number one by Kraftwerk, the model. first singer in The Stranglers, Hugh Cornwell, studied biochemistry in Sweden in the late 60s when he lived in Lund. And The Stranglers were formed shortly after he moved back to the UK. Um, you also had a, a, an early keyboard player called Hans Wärmling, who came yeah. from Gothenburg. Yeah. So there, there was a pretty big Swedish connection in the band. Yeah, yeah. Um, very early on. I mean, Hugh spoke pretty good Swedish, I think. Um, and uh, his band, Johnny Socks, which is more a sort of rhythm and blues band uh, of the time, you know, rock and roll band, came over. They had uh, an American uh, Vietnam draft dodger. Um, uh, Jan, I think, was the bass player. And then Hans Vermling, uh, he didn't come over with them. So they came over to the UK, uh, got a drummer, Jet, uh, moved into his uh, his shop of selling alcohol, lots of it, and uh, they. I met them because I, I stopped to give a hitchhiker a lift, the uh, the American guy, and of course in those days I had really short hair. Everyone had long hair, but I had short hair and a black leather jacket, and I was coming back from karate. And uh, I stopped to give this guy a lift, dropped him off by the liquor store in Guildford, and he invited me up to meet the rest of his friends um, who were disband. And then I must have given my address to Hugh, uh, my bedsit, my little apartment, because a few weeks later he knocked at my door and said they'd all gone back to Sweden because life was too tough in, in the UK. So it, was left, it left him with the drummer. And I happened to be playing guitar that night because I, I never went out of saving my money to go to Japan. And he saw that uh, I was playing guitar and he said, we've got the bass player left his bass guitar. Do you, would you consider playing with us? I said, yeah, I've got nothing to lose. You were quite much younger than the other members. Yeah. 
Not, not, I mean, now not, I'm the oldest. How does now that you're the out? oldest member, of the, <laughs> the, the only original member, and definitely the oldest. But at that point, you know, there was a big age difference, which is a lot when you're like, you know, 18, 19, yeah, you're playing yeah, with sure. someone who's nearly 30. Yeah, yeah. So what was that like? Uh, it was fine. I was treated like the baby of the band. Uh, but I quickly, you know, found my, my position because uh, I was writing. So when, um, after a few years, uh, I mean, I was quite an aggressive young teenager, you know, I'd grown up fighting. Uh, I didn't have much choice, to be honest. And um, so I, and then we were always getting booed off stage in the pubs. That was the only circuit you could play in to develop your, your you know, your style. And uh, it was you know, sometimes the landlord of the pub would pull the plug, we'd put it back in, the police would come, there'd be a fight. And one night it, it, it happened again and we were pretty low in, in saying, and you know, packing up our, our amps and everything. And I, I said something like, uh, oh, the Stranglers have done it again. And they said, that's the name. Because we used to... Um, we used to try and book us, get booked into the same pubs which we'd been thrown out of a few weeks before, but we had to change the name because so we couldn't say we were such and such a band, such... So we'd, and then the guys would might recognise us and say, aren't you the guys I called the police <laughs> for only about a month ago? No. Um, and, uh, yeah, anyway, that particular night, uh, the name The Stranglers stuck. Well, I think it was first the Guildford Stranglers... It's funny when you look at old pictures of the Stranglers because, you know, the other members, they have like beards and they look like really hard and like tough guys. But you look like this very, very cute little elf-like uh, yeah, boy. Which was part of the problem. <laughs> if, I'd look, if I'd had a broken nose I might not, I might, uh, and big muscles, I might have avoided uh, lots of fights. But, but also you look like someone who would get away with a lot of things. Well, I did get away with a lot of things, but that's another story. How come you, Cornwell, later wrote the song Sweden, All is Quiet on the Eastern Front, which sounds like some sort of criticism of Sweden? I think it was meant to be, or a tease. But it's sort of vague. He sings, let me tell you about Sweden, only country where the clouds are interesting. Big Brother says it's the place to go. So you get a feeling that, okay, it's so boring that the clouds are the only interesting I think that's that the, the intention. Yeah, I okay. think that's the intention. Uh, for, I mean, there's nothing like uh, biting the hand that feeds you, isn't, isn't there? And uh, but yeah, it was his uh, take on Sweden, and um, he uh, because I think Sweden was um, very in the forefront of countries who looked after their people, uh, and um, that's why the the Johnny Sox members left England to go back to Sweden because it was tough. Whereas in Sweden, you know, people can be looked after a bit better at that time, certainly. So uh, I think that's what, that's his idea. The big brother thing is about how, you know, uh, social democracy uh, here worked compared to the UK at the time. How did people react to that song? Well, the Brits, um, we did, we, did a, a British, ver an English version of it, and everyone loved it. Um, although we did get a lot of criticism in Sweden, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I know that there's a punk group called The Rude Kids. 
Yes. And they, they wrote uh, like a, re- a reply. That's right. I uh, remember that. Rude Kids are, of course, famous for the song Ragare is a Bunch of Motherfuckers. Which oh, really? Was, uh, it was single like, of the week in the enemy. Oh, cool. Uh, no, because the singer in the Rude Kids, he went to London with like 400 copies of the single and just went around to all the music magazines and they heard it and what, what on... What is Ragara? And why are they motherfuckers? You know, no one understood the lyrics. Yeah, sure. But the, the song was really good. So it was, um, we had a hit. Well, I, I, um, I had that single, the Rude Kids thing. Not that particular one. It was the one which sang, if Sweden's so boring, why don't you come over here or do something about it? <laughs> <Their song's laughs> something like directed that. to you, yeah. yeah. But did you ever meet them, the Rude Kids? Um, no, I no. don't think so. Uh, did I? Can't remember. My brain's going... about 12 uh, I heard this and it was it was uh, it was just prior uh, before the who but it had a sound to it that was well uh, many observers and journalists now consider it to be the start of metal um, and certainly there's always been discussion about who actually did the guitar solo in there. Some people say it was Jimmy Page uh, because he was doing a lot of sessions at that time. I don't know, but it was, it certainly, uh, it was a two minutes of glory. Your last album that came out um, in 2021 is called Dark Matter. How did you come up with that title? Well, it's um, about... Uh, scientists have been talking about dark matter now for a few years. It's one of the greatest enigmas because you can't see it, you can't touch it, and yet they think it accounts for something like 85 90% of the world, of the universe... It's what binds everything together. Now, I might be defining it very badly, but it's an enigma. We know it's there, but we can't see it. And I thought, yes, that's a great title for our next um, uh, Stranglers album because we're always involved with darker things rather than light things. Uh, And then the Black Lives Matter thing occurred during the lockdown while we were preparing this album. So I thought, let's put an S on it, so call it Dark Matters. And then we thought, well, okay, there's there's got to be a triumvirate of enigmas here. What's another enigma? Easter Island, the Easter Island statues. So they became the... Because originally it was just going to be a picture, a photograph of space. Uh, and then we decided to put the Easter Island uh, statues there because everyone's got theories but no one really knows how they got there. Speaking of dark... Apart from Thor Heyerdahl who tried proving that it they came so, from South What America. did Thor Heyerdahl say? Well, he tried proving um, uh, that all the you know the populations in that part of the world came, might have come from South America. But that's an enigma as well. No one knows. 
Will you have like replicas of those face statues on stage? Great idea, but that sounds a bit spinal tap to me. I was thinking of that. <laughs> you motherfucker. You, you're you're trying to get me into trouble. You first said that you wanted a picture of like dark space, so I instantly thought of uh, smell the glove, like just a black <laughs> cover. Yeah. Smell the glove, man. But speaking of uh, dark things and dark moments... Um, You famously got into a fight with The Clash after a show in 1976 at Dingwalls in, in London. Um, that was a huge row with a lot of people involved. W what happened that night? Uh, it's, it's handbags at ten paces, really. Um, we were... You know, 1976, there was an awful lot happening in London. Well, all over UK. Um, and it coincided with the American bicentenary when they made that huge mistake of throwing off British colonial rule. So they went independent. So there was a 200... It was the bicentenary, and it was the 4th of July and the 5th of July, or the third... The two nights running in London. And uh, representing New York with the Ramones representing London with the Stranglers, and we were on the same bill. There was another band called uh, the Flaming Groovies, actually, who were representing San Francisco. I don't know how San Francisco got in, into that mix because it wasn't part of the USA at the time, but that's another story. So there are all these bands going on, uh, and for some reason, and I really don't know why, we were chosen to represent London, which pissed off a few other bands at the time, and who had been mates of ours. We were hanging out in the same pubs and the same pubs which were allowed people with short spiky hair and leather jackets to congregate or even to play in. And um, I was... We'd just finished playing and I, I'd never drank in those days, but someone had given me um, half a bottle of wine, so I downed it. And I was leaving the venue, as, as we were all were leaving the very very busy, crowded place. And just as I walked past Steve and Paul from the Sex Pistols and Paul from The Clash, they were having a pint together, Paul, The Clash, in those days anyway, he had a, this nervous tick. He'd just go, <coughs> spit on the ground. <coughs> and he just did that as I walked past. So I thought that was disrespectful to me. So I punched him, spinning his beer and the Sex Pistols beer, and the, all three of them jumped on top of me and I was struggling and suddenly we found ourselves in the courtyard uh, because the big bouncers were twice our size. The security guys threw us out into the courtyard. So suddenly there was the stranglers on one side of the courtyard and a couple of friends and on the other side of the courtyard, um, Clash, Sex Pistols, um... Uh, a few other members, uh, Chrissy Hine from Pretenders, and journalists, a lot of journalists, music journalists, Enemy and Melody Maker. Was Nick Kent there? I don't know. Could have been. Who, who was the, I think it was um, Chrissy Hine's boyfriend for, for some time. Oh, right, okay. That was the early 70s. So. Okay, yeah, 76. Yes, yeah, so I'm there nose to nose with Paul, 
and um, everyone's looking, you know. <laughs> and but, but weren't you friends with Joe Strummer? He, yeah, he, he yeah. admired you. At yeah. Least. Well, in fact, uh, Hugh told me later. Uh, him and uh, Hugh and, and Joe were saying, "So your bass player's having a fight with my bass player." <laughs> <laughs> And nothing came of it except um, it polarized uh, opinion, and and most of the most of the opinion was on the side of Sex Pistols and the Clash, and not on the side of the Stranglers. So after that, there was a big um, we were kind of uh, ostracized. Yeah, one person who was supposedly involved in that fight was your one of your first fans, Dagenham Dave. Yeah, uh, whom you wrote a song about later on. Um, he was this guy. He wasn't from Dagenham. He was from Manchester. He came from Manchester originally, but he was working in in Dagenham, uh, the big Ford factory there, huge factory in the old days. And uh, he was mixed race. And um, he, yeah, he was uh, he was one of the very very first people to to uh, connect with us and followed us around and fought battles for us and everything and there was a lot of fighting in those days and he, but he was like well read he according he to your well. song he knew about marx and he knew yeah, he about did. the sad he knew yeah, about yeah and he was a working a working philosophy. class guy but he he was really uh il avait beaucoup de culture as we say in france uh he knew about so many things in fact introduced uh Hugh to the comedy store when it just opened up uh, just opened up um, yeah, so yeah, he introduces to a lot of new ideas, and he got into fights to defend your honor. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, and then he threw himself off the Tower Bridge in London. A few months later, yeah. Uh, Why? We never, we never found out. You said at some point that he was the horse vessel of the Stranglers, <laughs> meaning the the Nazi martyr. Well, I, I wouldn't say he was a Nazi martyr at all, uh, but he was the martyr of the Stranglers. Yeah. I always wondered why Morrissey wrote the song called Dagenham Dave 2. Yeah, don't know. Was Morrissey in any way a fan of yours? I hope not. <laughs> You've managed to provoke the audience quite many times. In your book, you mentioned this concert you did at Le Zenith in Paris, oh, yeah. where you recorded the entire show. And then... Yeah, it it was a joke that backfired. But we we've had a few jokes that have backfired, you know. Um, we recorded the show um, for posterity, and then just as a tease, as a joke, I came back on stage for the uh, Le Rappel, the encore, and said, L "Listen, I got to confess, um, we've been play it's been playback. The whole gig has been mimed." And I'm going to prove it to you. So I'd arranged with the engineer to play back what we'd recorded half an hour before. And suddenly, from being the golden boys in France, um, we got booed. And uh, yeah, that was the end of our career for a few years in France. But we've had that a few times. That's extremely funny. <laughs> what, well, I think what, what I a practical joke. But I thought it was funny, but they didn't see the, the joke in it. Especially and for like a rock audience, it's really important that you know you play live. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah. They don't even like synthesizers that much, probably. Oh, ours do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a YouTube clip from 2012 of someone throwing a pint at you during a concert in Liverpool, and you finish the song, then you yeah. jump into the audience and you um, um, get into a fight, or you? No, no. no there's you, no fight. You spoke to him. I, I, I bitch slapped him. Oh, okay. I didn't punch him. Just gave him a slap and said, "You're a naughty boy." Or something like that. <laughs> and <laughs> I wasn't going to have a fight with him. I, 
wouldn't be fair. Because you have a black belt in karate. Uh, oh. Yeah, uh, I've got a nanadan or seven, seven dan uh, in uh, Kyokushin-based karate, yes. Kyokushin is actually the style of karate that Dolph Lundgren um, really? uh, practices, yeah. And, um, and he's a genuine karate man. There's a funny comment under that YouTube clip. Someone has written, that guy in the audience is crazy. A pint is like five quid these days. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's got their priorities right. That's funny. I've never heard that. I'm a big fan of some of of early 20th century French music. Uh, Satie, Eric Satie, uh, Claude Debussy, uh, Ravel. And um, I discovered Debussy's music through this guy, Issei Tomita. Um, Snowflakes Are Dancing is the name of an album all on synthesizer, on very early synthesizers. And you, when you see the picture, there's a picture of him with these huge banks of synthesizers with all the... And uh, it's an interpretation of uh, the girl with the flaxen hair, Le Lin, Linen, and um, by Debussy. So I discovered semi-classical music through synthesizers. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Some of the most loyal Stranglers fans were part of this group called the Finchley Boys. Like a fan club, but you said that they were more of your, like your private army. Who, who were they? 
Well, they were a bunch of uh, teenagers, uh, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, who all grew up in the same council estates in North London. And it just, I think it's a coincidence, but um, the MP for Finchley became a woman known as Margaret Thatcher. Oh. And they were from the same area. And there were some very poor areas in that part of London, North London. And um, and quite a bit of immigration. But the guys were all mixed uh, up and there were, you know, uh, Greek Cypriots, Turkish Cypriots, uh, Jamaican kids, white kids, white London kids. And um, they had it coincided with... Um, with what was happening in London with the punk thing or whatever. And, and so they started dressing up like what they were supposed to, you know, expected to, and um, started um, not terrorising, but sort of teasing the bands on stage. So they'd jump up, you know, suddenly turn up like your caricature, your cartoon punks, on jump on the stage and the bands would, tend to run away. Well, they tried it with us and we weren't going to run away, you know. So suddenly they thought, oh, these guys um, are standing up to us. So they adopted us as their band and started following us around the country. But they didn't stage dive, they just jumped up on stage. To yeah, just like... dancing on stage. Oh. And and they were you know, quite fit, you know, young, fit, physical guys. And um, over the next few years, they... Um, They came all over the world with us, but... Um, Are they still around? Yeah, I mean, they're dying. Every few months, uh, one of them passes away, unfortunately. You know, some of them are in their 50s, some in their 60s. But, yeah, they uh, at one point, they terrorised all the other bands' fans uh, around London, you know, the um, Sex Pistols and the Clash fans. But um, And they... Um, yeah, we're still, we're still in touch, Um those who are left. According to rock mythology, Bono from U2 once robbed your dressing room because you refused to wear a U2 badge. <laughs> yeah, well, How did that come about? Well, I don't know. Um, but uh, I really don't know. Uh, but they did support us in, uh, in Ireland. Uh, so... They uh, were your support act? Yeah, they were, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I should ask that because Adam Clayton's become a, a, a friend, you know, the, the bass player. I must ask him about that. But I know they said that of all the bands that coming through at that time, that we didn't look like kids; we looked like serious men. I don't know what that means. Does it mean we've terrified them, or I don't know? When making the album Men in Black in 1980, you decided to take heroin for a whole year just to see what happened. And maybe write about it. That sounds incredibly stupid. Uh, yes, it was uh, absolutely incredible. Couldn't be more stupid than than that. But I mean, the, the album came out really good, but well, how some people think well, so. Even, even people who you know are serious drug users don't mess with heroin. Yeah, uh, well, we messed with it, but um, the, our saving grace was that we never uh, used needles. So um, I suppose that saved us. But it was, um, yeah, it was a dumb thing. It was a sort of Jekyll and Hyde thing. Maybe people at that time didn't realise how, how dangerous 
that drug was? Well, I think some people did, um, but we didn't. We were very naive about it. We just thought it was another drug which uh, changed our level of consciousness. Uh, and fortunately, we had uh, a, a good network around us which prevented us falling further into uh, into the trap. It's, it's, yeah, it's a dark, very dark time. As dark as you can get, actually. But, yeah, that was the experiment to see what would come out of it. Um, and it wasn't that easy getting out of it once you're kind of in there, but uh, we did. Riders on the storm Riders on the storm Into this house we're born Like a dog without a bone and actor out alone. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. When I was a young student um, in Yorkshire, in the north of England, uh, I uh, started experimenting with LSD, acid. Um, and with another guy who's since become a, a bishop, uh, a Protestant <laughs> bishop. But we, because we both, we'd all read Dr. Timothy Leary's Politics of Ecstasy, and we believed that if we have all our economics books open and we take LSD and we just look at the pages, we would re register it in our brains. Just absorb the knowledge. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Unfortunately. <laughs> so, so, but um, what we would do sometimes is, is play music which had just come out and uh, L.A. Woman had just come out. What I found um, refreshing about it, because it reminded me of when I was in my early teens, it's basically a blues album. Um, it's, uh, and I, I grew up very... I was very fortunate where I grew up in, in, in England to be able to see bands like uh, Fleetwood Mac before they'd... Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac before they'd ever done a record or bands like Free, before they were called Free, and in a pub in front of 50 people. So um, I had an affinity with uh, uh, blues music, and um, I loved L.A. Women because it was a, a blues album, but with, with a, uh, a dark side to it. And um, yeah, it's one of my favorite all-time tracks. It's funny that your friend, the friend you did acid with, that he became a bishop. If you read the book *The Doors of Perception* by Aldous Huxley, yes, that inspired the, you know the Doors band name. Uh, yes. he writes about how the psychedelic experience is something that humans have like searched for for centuries. Mm. That that's the reason why they have like colored beautiful glasses in churches that but, you need yes. to find some kind of you know psychedelic vibe yeah. and when you do acid your brain reacts the same way you know you're trying yeah. to reach ecstasy during a during 
uh, service in church as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's just a different thing. Well, there are theories. There are loads of theories about, you know, I mean, if Jesus did go out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights uh, without eating, you get you don't get any sugar going to the brain. So you get uh, lightheaded and you uh, hallucinate or you get uh, some form of ecstasy. Um, or, or the theory is about Muhammad, mm -hmm. the Muslim prophet, actually being uh, epileptic. There are all kinds of interesting theories because I mean the, the, the yeah we all we've all wanted to move. I think it's a you're right. It's a desire to go beyond the present in this dimension because there are other dimensions. Stephen Hawking mathematically proved that as well. But I think most enlightened people know there have been other dimensions. I don't mean being sick in the gutter when you come out of the pub. Uh, I think a heightened level of a consciousness is, is something that spiritual people seek. In your book, you talk a lot about how the media have ignored the stranglers. And it seems as a mystery until you read about all the journalists that you've you know, had, you know, conflicts with, like, you know, for instance, John Savage is probably the most important punk historian. Um, you get into a, like, bitch slap thing with him. And this other guy, you gaffer tape to the Eiffel Tower. And, you know, when you read the book, you could think that, well, maybe, you know, gaffer taping a French journalist to the Eiffel Tower is not the best way to ensure that you get a place in punk history. I think you're absolutely right. Um, but on the other hand... Um, it's very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you don't regret any of that? No, no. I think it's... Um, well, you sold a lot of records back then, so you made money at least. So Yeah, yeah, and we s still do. I, I think it's... Uh, listen, you, you, if someone has a prejudice towards you and publishes that prejudice, you have a right of reply. Now, since I'm not a journalist and I don't have a newspaper to write to criti criticise my detractors or critics, um, I, at the time, I, had, I chose my own means of replying. But you're a songwriter. You look at you know, the American group Sonic Youth. They were once got a bad review in the Rolling Stone and then they wrote this track called, I think, uh, I Killed Christ Gow With My Big Fucking Dick. Christ Gow was a famous journalist. <laughs> right. I think I wouldn't give them that honour. I, I certainly don't think they deserved to be part of a Stranglers. I think they're much more important things to write about in Stranglers songs than fucking journalists, you know, um, who, who don't like the Stranglers or who are really nasty about the Stranglers. So, no, it would be a waste of time. I've played one of your records more than any other. The Euroman Cometh, your solo debut from 1979. It's a lovely piece of dark electronic music where I can hear influences from this group called Suicide, at yep. least, yep. and maybe like German electronic music as well. It's a concept album about a united Europe. Yes. And it seems to embrace that idea, but also there's... It's as if you, you know, also saying about the dark history of the continent... Were you saying about how the Euro man is a descendant of Charlemagne, Napoleon and Hitler? Yeah. Let's listen to the song. Je suis de Je suis de Cromwell. Mm -hmm. 
At the end, when you sing Euroman, Euroman sounds like your old man. Exactly. And it, it makes me think of my favorite Scott Walker song, The Old Man's Back Again, where he sings about how the Soviet Union invaded Prague in 1968. Uh, I'm not sure if that was on purpose <laughs> or even if you know that song, but... Well, there, uh, there are references to uh, Prague actually on Euroman album. Uh, Jan Palak, uh, Euromess and stuff. Um, it, I, I still think it's the most rad- revolutionary idea ever for our continent. Um, and interestingly enough, recent events have started uh, doing the opposite of what Putin was trying to to achieve, i.e., in other words, uniting everyone uh, in Europe closer, getting them closer anyway, uh, against a common enemy. But without, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, like all these things, it's not a perfect situation. But people forget really easily that this is the longest period in Europe's history that we've had peace. Yeah, because we've been killing each other for 2,000 years yeah. or more. Yeah. You know, it's just been war upon war upon war, especially yeah. between Germany and France. Yeah, especially. But um, not only, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, like uh, when uh, Bonaparte, you know, sent his marshal to Sweden to... <laughs> become king. To be, well, he didn't... Yeah, he did, I don't think he sent him to become king. He was a bit pissed off when he did become king. Uh so uh, I, I think uh, it still is a, a very radical idea. And I, what I wouldn't want to see is uh, national identities or cultures disappearing. And I don't think they will. But surely it's much better to find what we have in common than what separates us. So how, did, how did you feel about Brexit? I think it was the biggest own goal in history. I think... And now it's starting to be appear that all the a lot of the information about Brexit, which fueled Brexit, was fueled by the Russians. They were so involved in misinformation. Yeah, they support populist movements everywhere. It's like here in Sweden, we just had an election, yeah. and um, like the proto-fascist party came in second. Yeah. They're the second biggest, biggest party yeah. after the Social Democrats. Think about it. They, it's obvious they, now. They've, they, had, they've had connections to Russia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, think about it. Uh, well, yeah, the Le Pen in France. Uh, Especially, yeah. Finance, uh, given, taken money from uh, Russia. Nigel Farage, who was the head of the UK UKIP, admitted taking at least £600,000 from the Russians, maybe for ostensibly for doing media work, even the American election. And how many years has this been going on, you know? they Because it's now obvious that they can't fight a, a war so um, with conventional weapons. So uh, what they, they've been doing for years, creating dissension um, and uh, amongst people and amongst organisations... To, 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 you know, you, you divide and conquer. Um, but that we've, we've worked out their game. Uh, so it's up to us to stand strong against that. But, yeah, I think they, they were behind Brexit, behind uh, Scotland trying to uh, go independent as well. 
behind les gilets jaunes in France, behind a lot of the social movements. Um, we got banned from Glastonbury because I, even as a young student, I disagreed with CND. Now, CND was a campaign for nuclear disarmament. So what it was, was, I mean, we, none of us want nuclear wars or nuclear stuff, but it, it advocated unilateralism. Unilateralism is the Russians keep their nuclear weapon and we get rid of ours. Now, to me, that sounded strategic, strategically dumb. But it had a lot of support. So in the early days, Glastonbury was sponsored or co-sponsored with CND. So when in the early days we were asked to, to play that, I said, no, I don't want to be involved with this. So, yeah, they never forgot. <laughs> there are a lot of dilettantes out there, and this guy had a voice. He based it on Howling Wolf, um, the blues, the old blues, American blues singer. And he had this bunch of psychedelic guys. He went to school with Frank Zappa, actually. But he had this crazy band, um, and uh, it's polarising, this band, because you either like him or not. I rather like the whole concept around it. It's sort of bluesy, but it's also kind of of its time. It's psychedelic. Um, but what I also like are the names of the members of the band. Wing Deal Fingling, uh, Art Trip the Third, um, Rocket Morton, um, Captain Beefheart, his real name is Don Van Vliet, and just the whole thing around it. <laughs> a breakdown later on and it's just the bass is especially difficult but the sound What's happening with the Stranglers documentary that was supposed to come out last year? I think it was, yeah, uh, last year or the year before, actually. Um, uh, Hugh objected to it being released. Your ex-singer. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, um, Is he, he in it? Or? Yeah, he's in it. And, um, the only and he just objected. He's not bad. He's he's not criticised or anything, and he's allowed to speak freely. So the only person who gets um, bad press in it is me. When Hugh says something bad about me, I never said anything bad about him. So uh, we respected his wishes not to release it. However, in the light of Sex Pistols court case, uh, we could release it, but we're in no hurry to release it because it's now a bit out of date. So we're going to up update it over the next uh, eighteen months. What can people expect when you play at Banch in Stockholm on the 8th of October? A few bad jokes, 
and uh, well, I think we we I want I'm not ashamed of any of the old stuff. So I'll play uh, stuff from way back right up to now. You know, we've got uh, an embarrassment of riches because not many bands have that. You know, because some sometimes bands form then they have a bit of success if they're lucky, uh, and then when the success subsides, they split up. Well, to me, that's the tail wagging the dog. But it should be the dog wagging the tail. Do you think that the Finchley boys will show up? Well, those who are still alive and can walk, yes. <laughs> Maybe not in Stockholm. But... I read somewhere that this is your last tour. No, it's, um, it's not our last tour. Um, our British tour uh, the, earlier this year was our last big British tour. But we'll still play. I, but I want to... I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want the band to start being a cabaret band or a karaoke band or something, you know. So I want to be able to maintain a certain level of enthusiasm. And I have to say that if if Scotty could beam me down, on it would be much better than travelling because travelling these days is a bull's ache. I think it was Lemmy who once said that if you ask yourself if you're too old for rock and roll, then you are too old for rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. You should just never stop. Uh, I, I think so. I well, you know, why should a musician suddenly stop playing? You know, I mean, why should a painter stop playing? Why should you stop in doing what you do? You know, um, it's not uh, a nine-to-five job. It's, uh, it's um, you know, we're a men on a mission. And Jet, your drummer, he played on until like 2015, right? He, well, yeah, he was already uh, over... And he was five years older than Mick Jagger. Yeah, he's also um, uh, had health problems. We've had eight drummers in the in the. That sounds so spinal tapish. We've had eight drummers. They haven't <laughs> died <laughs> in a strange gardening ac yeah. accident. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, uh, Jet's always had health problems, even when he was a much younger man. Uh, so occasionally we've had to use uh, other drummers, you know, just to play the gig, you know. Uh, so, but he's still around, and I spoke to him last week, and I think he's in hospital this week. Um, next week he'll be out, and but we like he's got a black sense of humour. You know, every time someone dies, David Bowie or George Michael or Lemmy, he says, well, <laughs> "I'm still alive." <laughs> Well, I've got much more important things to do now, like have a beer. So, um, was a tremendous honor to have you here, John Jacques. Thank you, merci. Well, doing yeah, and, and thank you very much for inviting me. The podcast was produced by Daniel Beckström for Leon Media. John Jacques Bernal from The Stranglers was here in Australia. Someone get me over you